when I just was walking around outside just now, <clears throat> and when we get into those states, you know, of just that open awareness of not really any thought or any sense of differentiation from the environment, is just so peaceful. There's such, there's just no problem. You know, that's just that pointing to that state of open awareness. And in that state, like, there's no problem, and there's nothing to say, and there's nothing to talk about. And uh, it's sort of hard to talk from that state, <laughs> which is why I have 7,000 notes. But um, in a way, that, that leads into what I do want to talk about, which is that in the, the way that the Buddhist teachings are described, it's said to have two wings, like a bird has to have two wings to fly. And the two wings of the Buddhist teaching are the wings of great wisdom and great compassion. And so, mostly tonight, I want to talk about compassion and how it manifests, how we can work with it and notice how it becomes stronger through our practice in the force of intention. I heard a talk by Robert Thurman once, who's quite a Tibetan scholar and practitioner, and he was talking about the balance of wisdom and compassion, and it really struck home with me, where he talked about that the wisdom of emptiness, of non-self, of impermanence, can seem by itself, can seem kind of cool and removed, that we, we touch it in silence, in samadhi, or like when I'm ambling around outside and it's just just what it is. There's nothing else to say or do. But it can seem quite, as I said, removed. Whereas compassion is a, a movement of the heart and it arises from connectedness. Connectedness with others, connectedness with ourselves, connectedness with the world. And they really balance one another. Because just as the wisdom of emptiness can seem kind of, not cerebral, but not even self-serving, but just kind of off on its own somehow. Compassion, without the balancing force of wisdom, of understanding, can lead us into, as some of you, most of you probably know, you can get really overwhelmed, you can turn from compassion to frustration to, you can just, you know, we can drown in suffering. But compassion is said to be the link between Buddhas and beings. And how the wisdom of awareness, of emptiness, its natural expression is that of the actions of compassion. So that, in a way, the two naturally go together anyway. So it's said that compassion is the link between Buddhas and beings. When you think about it, the, the historical Buddha, what we know about him when he was about 35 is when he came to his great opening and understanding, complete enlightenment. He could have very well just spent the rest of his life sitting off in the bliss of Nibbana, you know, and been very happy. He didn't have any more problems. But instead, he spent the next 45 years 
tirelessly walking all around and do you teaching? It's the natural expression. And how we can begin to see how this manifests in our practice here, and that's really what I want to talk about tonight, our practice here, is in the expression of intention, which we've talked about a little before. So say when we're sitting, we're walking, we're just being, in the understanding of how things truly are, everything comes and goes. As Joseph was saying this morning, it just kind of moves through. Happiness, sadness, compassion, hatred, boredom, pain, joy. It comes, it's there, it moves through. It doesn't have, nothing is more important than anything else. But where what is arising does begin to have impact or it does begin to have an effect is when it functions as the intention that leads to thought, speech, or action, which is arising all the time. You know, it's how we live and move. What's really wonderful about this practice is one, there's many of the specific things we do. There are many ways to work with consciously purifying our intentions. But what also happens is simply by seeing, simply by being connected, simply by letting awareness do its thing, intentions from which we speak and act naturally purify themselves. Lucky thing. And it does happen. So I know we've spoken some about intention. I just want to again describe it because it really is so key. We know it is our tendency for many of us to evaluate our actions or others' actions by the results or by how it appears to us. And often forgetting to tune in to what the intention is or to impute from someone else's action. It's easy to impute what we think their intention is, but we can't know. And in the Buddhist understanding of karma, of cause and effect, the seed of all effect, of all thought, speech, and action is in the intention. It is so key. It's so powerful. And I've personally been finding awareness of intention, the willingness to remember to tune into that over and over and over to be a fantastic support in my daily life of really exploring what I'm doing and why and affecting change in what I do and why. So this intention, it's like the volition, the subtle impulse that arises before a thought. Well, that one's pretty hard to notice before speech, before action. And that particular volition in any moment can be accompanied by or driven by any of the whole range of mental experience. It can be accompanied by love, by greed, by delusion, by generosity, by compassion, by hatred, by whatever. There's a, a story that's told in the Buddhist suttas that, that shows the importance of intention and how we can't tell from the outside. 
it seems there was a monk who was practicing very diligently doing his walking meditation and he was blind so he was walking in the forest and as he was walking stepping on ants without knowing it and killing them and he was supposed to be an arhat which in this terminology means completely enlightened which means he would not be able delusion or hatred or greed would not arise in him as an intention to action so some of the other monks saw this and went running to the Buddha. This actually happens a lot. It kind of amuses me. Went running to the Buddha and said, well, he's supposed to be an arhat, but he's stepping on ants and killing them. <laughs> There's a lot of stories where things came out like that. And uh, the Buddha, who one of his powers was supposedly he could see into the mind of all, all beings, said, no, he is in our heart, and because he doesn't know that he's killing the ants and there's absolutely no intention it's not an unskillful act which is very interesting now once the bhikkhu knows there's ants there if he were to keep walking anyway it's a whole different story and so that's kind of from the way the Buddha described it the crux of intention extremely powerful and it's not the way that we sometimes tend to look at or evaluate action the Buddha described a path of practice of development that we can cultivate in our daily life in our meditative life called the Eightfold Noble Path kind of eight different aspects And, you know, it starts at the beginning, one to eight, but it's really more like a circle, like a mandala. And the first step or path, so to speak, is wise understanding. That actually we wouldn't even begin a path of purification, a path of uh, awakening, without some degree of wise understanding. Just knowing somehow things are other than they might superficially seem. And each of these stages sort of informs the next. The next stage is wise aspiration or wise intention, leading to the next three, which have to do with speech and action in the world, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So out of that I get, you know, he picked eight things. And... Of those eight, one of them is wise intention, wise aspiration, extremely important. And saying, at least to me, that how we understand the world informs our intentions, how we think, which then is what leads to our speech and actions. So, for example, if, if we're a psychopath, and the way we understand the world is that it doesn't matter what I do to anybody, it has no effect, you do whatever you want. If we understand the sense of cause and effect, then we'll be much more careful with our speech and actions. Or if we understood as a small child that if you ask any questions or question authority, you get a slap upside the head, then that's going to affect a lot of the ways that you speak and act later in your life until you understand that that wasn't an accurate understanding. The Buddha says that the mind is the forerunner of all action. Incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. But so subtle 
The movement of intention and the movements of our mind are so subtle and so quick that I think that's the beauty of taking a time like this, 10 days, where it seems like we're not doing much, but we're really exploring these movements and actions of the mind and how they affect our actions in our life and how we deal with ourselves. We really need to give ourselves this deep inquiry in order to begin to understand on another level. So as I say, that it's said that, and it's my, my experience and also what I deeply have faith in, that the natural expression of our understanding is compassion, is intentions of compassion in our thought, speech, and action. And there's many levels of this. On the biggest, vast level, of course, is that sense of the intimation or the just brief recognition of the ultimate truth, of our true nature, or as Sogyal Rinpoche puts it, no, no description's really accurate. So this is just one that I picked. That which we really are, unchanging, pure awareness, which underlies the whole of life and death. Just touching that, in that moment, when we think of it, the sense of no separate self, of constant change, of no lasting phenomenon to rely on, that can scare us to death. Now, the sense, the fear of change, the fear of nothingness, the fear of emptiness, you can just start to come close to it, in or out of practice, and the mind just goes, no way, thank you, I'm checking out of here. But what's so wonderful is the flip side of that is just the barest instant of touching this ground of pure awareness, the sense, not the sense, but the knowing of no separation, of total connectedness is in that moment there's no sense of separation and therefore nothing is lacking and nothing needs to be pushed away. The idea of wanting something or fearing something or needing something just isn't relevant. It just doesn't have anything to do with what we truly are. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, you recognize there is no need to put something in front of you and chase after it because you see that everything is already here in yourself. Total completeness. And the natural expression of that completeness is then that it manifests as the movement of connectedness to all other beings and things because there isn't. It isn't like me and them. It's just we are. And the sense of the the touching of others' pain and the natural response of compassion to it shines forth spontaneously in these moments. And then on the other levels, and that's what I want to talk about the rest of the talk, are other levels of practice. When we might have moments when we're not quite resting in the vast space of completeness. And as 
clear as our overall intentions might be, these old habits somehow tend to creep in. They tend to slip up on us. The habits of greed, of anger, of confusion. And that's really, to me, why I practice. To keep rediscovering what is true and to keep discovering how the habits come in to recognize them again for being as empty as they are and to allow the natural purification of understanding and intention to again take place. So I want to talk now on the level of, of, of working in different ways, how this practice, for me, helps with these habits in the area of intention and compassion. To begin with, when I think about it, or in talking to people, mostly I, I teach a lot of retreats, so I talk to a lot of people in this particular mode. So we'll be talking about things like this a lot. And what's it's really painful and almost shocking to me, although I don't know why it should be shocking, if you look around at the world, it's kind of obvious, is that it's almost the, the way of the world It's sort of expected, it seems to me in some ways, that the motivations for action of anger, of craving or greed, are perfectly fine motivations. I mean, they definitely get a lot done. And sometimes people in uh, talking to me on retreat will say, well, but if I don't act from craving, if I don't act from anger, what am I going to do? Just sit in my room for the rest of my life? Uh, it's like that makes me so sad because there's the underlying assumption that those are the only motivations for activity. And it's so powerful that I find myself, if I'm not paying attention, I can easily be drawn into that myself. But again, as intention is the crux, even though we can't judge from the outcome or the result, what I feel quite deeply, and what I also notice when I look around, is that at some point when our intentions or the intentions of the bigger picture change somehow and do begin to come from hatred or or from confusion or from greed, something that might have very powerful and significant effects begins to get a little twisted somehow. You know, it can't quite maintain the power. And this is like really big picture examples. But for you know, remember when the Berlin Wall went down a few years ago, and I was, I think it was in the middle of a, a fall three month course. We were watching it on TV, and there was this. I remember just feeling such a sense of a thrill, you know, and this feeling of oh, <laughs> community and love and kindness is really triumphing. And I have some friends who live in Berlin before and after. And they told me a couple of things about it. One, that that big party that it looked like they were having on the top of the wall that seemed so loving and ecstatic. This, a woman friend of mine was there, and she said it started out nice, but it turned into this kind of drunken revelry that was really scary and unpleasant. And I said, oh, you know, another illusion I had destroyed. And that... Again, with Germany, or we can see the same thing in some ways in all of Eastern Europe and the old Soviet Union, that what looked like this is great, this, this sort of regime built on fear and oppression, 
has fallen and now there'll be this really good-hearted sense of working together, you know, and some of the people, West Berliners, and they all, a lot of the German, I have really good German friends and they make the distinction. They can tell right away if someone was from East Germany or West Germany, even though there's not supposed to be East or West anymore. And my friend Franz told me uh, that there's this T-shirt that says, bring back our wall, because they liked it better that way. You know, and of course, I don't even, I don't even need to talk about what's going on in the former Yugoslavia and Romania and all those countries where the one fearful oppression going away just made room for other hatreds and fears and greeds to arise, the hatred of the other. And it's so painful. And I'm not trying to be naive and say, oh, if we just all have loving kindness, everything will be okay. You know. But I'm just trying to, in this context, say that what we can work with in the context of this meditation retreat is being very honest and very clear with our own intentions and what effect that has and how easily we can be deluded about our own intentions. But also to begin to appreciate, which I'm sure all of you must, I mean, of course I don't know specifically what you each do, but again, I'm convinced that the work that you do springs from compassion and real caring and interconnectedness, you know, or what would any of us be doing here? So it's not to say that isn't so, but within it, to, to really continue to investigate on a moment-to-moment level and see how that can, see how that can change. I know, looking at how compassion can be our prime motivation for something, but it can so easily, the other old habits can slip in. It can become mixed. Like, if we don't have the balance of wisdom, the equanimity of wisdom, seeing that with all our good intentions, we can't control the results. And that, I know, over time can so easily lead a shift from real open-hearted compassion to kind of a frustration, or a hardness, or a despair. There's a story in uh, the autobiography of Sister Fong, or Chan Kong, as she's called now, which I've just been reading, and it, it's inspired me a lot, because uh, I met her, I don't know, in 86, spent a few weeks with, with her and Thich Nhat Hanh. And at the time, not knowing too much of her history, knowing they'd worked in the, a lot in Vietnam during the war and seen enormous suffering, but just meeting her and spending time, I was so impressed by the, she's a dynamo, the enormous amount of energy that she has, had at that time, it seems like she still has, and the Plum Village, she just was constantly doing things to help people. I mean, everything from spraying bug spray in somebody's room who was complaining about spiders, to, you know, just working with all the children, to using her free time to send parcels back to Vietnam, to trying to raise money, to giving Dharma talks. I mean, just one thing after the other. And I really felt, and again, I can only project a little, but I really felt the sense of the power of compassion as a motivation is ultimately so much stronger than anger or greed or confusion. It just seems to lend so much energy. 
And I remember thinking, I'd be sitting there, and oh, you know, may all beings be happy, wouldn't it be nice to do something? And she would have run around and done 35 things, you know, and the time I was just sitting there going, oh, you know, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah. There's something to be said for someone really grounded in compassion. And so reading her book, and I'll probably use a few examples from her because I've really felt like I'm learning a lot with someone who's clearly constantly working with cultivating the intention of compassion, not just assuming it's going to be there, but constantly working with it. So in this, this field of not being able to control the outcome, and can we still come back to love and compassion? She told a story when, uh, in 67, I think she was in jail in, in Vietnam for carrying one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books, apparently quite wretched conditions. And after some weeks, some high-powered person interceded and she was released. And she had been in a cell with a lot of people. And in that cell were two 12-year-old girls who hadn't done anything. They just were in the wrong place at the wrong time and got swept up with a bunch of other so-called gorillas. So as she was released, she talked to the, the guy in charge, whatever he was, and just said about these two girls, you know, this isn't a prison's not a good place for 12-year-old girls, and they've done nothing, couldn't you release them? A totally courageous and compassionate thing to do. And the response to the commandment was, oh, these prisoners have been talking to each other, that isn't good, and he made the conditions harsher. And it's horrible. And you can't know in advance. And I know just reading it, I tighten up, I get indignant, or I can move actually myself into a space of passivity, better not to say or do anything, it might make things worse. So how to continue to open, continue to cultivate compassion, which is a soft and connecting quality in the face of all kinds of harshness and ignorance. How to maintain the openness, the motivation to continue to act from compassion when other people, even if they think, and we think they're acting from compassion, they don't do the things we think are the compassionate thing to do. You know, how to balance, again, the motivation of compassion with the equanimity of wisdom that our views as right as we think they are, or still views, and other people will act as compassionate as they might be, but from their own understanding, which might be different from ours. They might really be off, but who's to say? I'll give an example. Once I mentioned Mother Teresa. I was talking about the amazing energy of compassion. I mentioned Mother Teresa and all the stuff she's done. And after that, a man came up really quite incensed and said, you know, how could you talk about her being compassionate because she really must be homophobic the way she treats AIDS patients. Plus, not to mention, you know, her attitude on birth control in countries like India and all. And it's very interesting because, I mean, those are valid points in a way. And then it was quite interesting, absolutely having nothing to do with this. The next day, an old, old friend came to visit me at the retreat. And apropos of nothing, she started talking about how she'd happened to be in Calcutta a few months before and had spent a day volunteering in, in like the main hospital of Mother Teresa, and she just started talking about the unbelievable suffering that's there. You know, just something her mind and my mind in this culture can hardly take in. And she's just giving a whole description of the 
the sick children and the undernourished children and the sick people and and the beautiful serene quality of all the nuns, you know, not the famous Mother Teresa's, but all the anonymous nuns who are there have devoted their life to serving. You know, and I thought well, that's just a really interesting balance. And who's to say? Who's to say what's right? And so I myself often find that when I have some idea of what compassionate action should look like, that in a way, when it doesn't happen that way, I find that my own intentions, my own responses begin to harden and turn judgmental or turn angry or turn despairing. And so again, my work is to come back to my own intention, you know, to act as clearly as possible. And the one last area that I think is really most important is when we're working and we lose, especially in being on the front lines like you guys all are. When you're working so hard and trying to do so much for the environment, for people, sometimes we forget that compassion is undiscriminating. It has a boundless aspect, which means that it includes ourselves. And sometimes we forget that. I'm going to read this from Thomas Merton. There's a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist, fighting for peace by nonviolent means, most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of the activist neutralizes her work for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of her own work because it can kill the root of inner wisdom that makes the work fruitful. Again, an opinion. An opinion. A powerful one. Something to keep looking at. So in all things, and this is where we come back to this practice, which gives us, hopefully, the capacity to remember to continue to bring mindful awareness to this aspect of intention. Without it, the old habits begin to creep in. With it, it takes a real commitment to inquiry, a commitment to awareness, and a real kind of determination to stick with it. It's not like I can make the intention, okay, I'm really going to be aware of intentions from now on, you know, and have it happen. It really takes being willing to keep waking up from Sister Fong again. Now she's talking about current day, more or less current day, where a lot of monks and nuns and artists and intellectuals are being arrested and tortured and killed in Vietnam. Every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry, and I knew that I had to do walking meditation. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. 
Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a lovely monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. And she gives lots of other examples of times that she didn't do that. She says, where I lost my calm, you know, and basically considers that she blew it and things didn't work and people just resisted her. Very impressive. And this is after 30 years of consistent activism and consistent commitment to the path of compassion and understanding. It never just gets so automatic, you know, that we don't take responsibility for inquiring into our own intentions. One teacher said once that our old habits of confusion don't just vanish, but they wear out slowly like an old piece of cloth. So they get thinner and thinner and you can sort of see through it. Then there's some little holes. Maybe one day it's gone altogether. It's little by little. So we do find that the intentions will begin to purify naturally. You might notice it even on retreat in little things. And I think it's helpful just to look at little things. Don't go for the biggest, most difficult situation. But if, I don't know, it doesn't feel like that's happening at this retreat, but at some retreats, food is like a major issue. (laughs) (laughs) Lunchtime is a very significant time of day. And so, for example, if you're finding that Someone finds that it's this fear of not getting enough food, or all that has to happen, say in a three-month course, is that one day there's not enough food, and the last few people come, and the casseroles run out. <laughs> That's all that has to happen to set up this kind of mindfully, kind of quiet stampede. <laughs> Lunch. The next, you know, everyone's trying to look nonchalant. Come on, <laughs> intensity five minutes before the bell rings for, for food. And you'll, people will often notice, and you can notice yourself, this particular example might not be, but any other little thing, where one day you notice a come up, what if I don't get, oh no, there's only five muffins and there's seven people in front of me. What's going to happen? And then the thought arises, that's okay. I'm glad they're getting the muffins and I'll live. You know, you kind of go, where did that come from? That doesn't sound like me. (laughs) (laughs) But it is. It's it's a little thing. But it's a natural purification of intention. It's an intention of generosity or you're letting go. Notice the little things. You know, sometimes we're so hard on ourselves, we want to be like this perfect, compassionate bodhisattva. And we'll just put down, well, it's about time you gave up your greed. You know, honor the little things. Appreciate them. So I want to talk about a couple of ways also that we consciously, in our practice, cultivate and see how our intentions begin to change from greed, from hatred, to compassion and kindness, love. One big one is something Joseph spoke about last night, and that's opening to pain. 
simply the the willingness to be fully present for pain has the effect of opening into understanding and compassion. I just want to give three simple examples of different kinds of pain from, from my own experience. One is physical pain. One time I was in the hospital quite acutely ill and in a lot of pain. As you probably know, intense pain can have the effect of being very isolating. It's this sense of, you know, however painful it is and however nice people might be, somehow, you know, it's really clear I'm the one in pain, not them. You know, it somehow isn't quite shared. And I was like that for a few days and also pretty out of it, not really knowing what was going on. And at some point I sort of came to and realized I was in a room with three other women, really elderly women, like in their 80s or so. And it, for some reason, was an orthopedic ward, which wasn't what was wrong with me. But so was these really old, frail women all up in all kinds of you know, casts and their arms up and their legs up and they couldn't move. You know, and they were moaning and crying. And it was really sad. And I kind of came to and saw that and it just started opening up into this sense of not just me and my pain, but God, all of us here, and it's really what's going on with them is really intense, much more than me. And somehow just this sense spread out where I thought of how many rooms are there just in this hospital? How many hospitals just in this little area, in this state, just in this country? And just kept going and going and going. And out of that came such a sense of the interconnectedness of all of us in our pain, and even the people that weren't in pain at that time will be in pain at another time. And the sense of compassion is a real active sense of connectedness to pain. It's sometimes defined as a quivering of the heart in response to suffering. So it's it's active and connected. It has nothing to do with pity or kind of sympathy or that poor person over there. It's a really a sense of togetherness, a sharing in that way. And that really grew for me very strongly out of that physical pain. Another example uh, of our willingness to open to emotional pain. Again, this was, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And I just, I'd been in a relationship for five years or so, and it broke up. And for some reason, you know, particular relationships are can somehow trigger this enormity of grief and loss and despair. And for some reason, this one did. And so where there had been, before we broke up, this huge fear and denial of actually, I had this image, oh, we're in this perfect relationship, you know. As soon as we broke up, the fear went, because what was happening, I was afraid of, was already happening. And I began to see how much I'd been denying. <laughs> this wasn't perfect. What are you kidding? This wasn't even that hot. You know what? <laughs> and I saw that. Well, he's a nice guy and all of us. And I saw that. And even, <laughs> even seeing that, though, so that I wasn't even anymore living in this delusion of perfection, I went into such a state of grief and despair that the kind of where you just, I would wake up in the morning with this heaviness, uh, I just, I can't believe I have to live through another day. And of course, there's a lot of resistance at first and fighting and wanting to make it go away. Well, the fact is it went on for two years. And at 
some point, really within a couple of months, I mean, I was living my life and all, I wasn't just doing nothing. I remember one time, <laughs> do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> it's about him, that's why I asked. I'm sure he doesn't remember. <laughs> Actually, during this period of grief, I came, I was in England, and I came back and began a two-year stint of managing our meditation center, IMS. So I was actually quite busy. And also felt like I was a basket case, because I was really in this deep emotional pain. And one time I was talking to Joseph about, you know, I'm such a basket case, I shouldn't be managing in such a position of responsibility. And his immortal advice was, so what else are you going to do? Go sit around and mope? (laughs) 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 It's helpful. (laughs) Anyway, the point I'm trying to get to is that somewhere, and within a couple of months, I really accepted that this was a process I had to go through. I mean, I didn't like it, but I, I felt, and in retrospect, I feel that I really deeply opened to and accepted this depth of grief and sadness because I could tell it would, it would, it's not like the minute I accept something, it goes away. It doesn't always work like that. And I could see early on that it was a grief that had to do with, I don't know, lifetimes, you know. It wasn't just about this one incident. And in that, sort of like, would go in phases, like peeling away layers of an onion, where there'd be a real deep, deep grief. I'd allow it, I'd sit with it, and it would open up into this sense of love and connection with all beings that was amazing, because certainly not looked for. Just trying to let the grief be there. And over the period of two years, my friends got really sick of it. <coughs> I said, okay, it's time to move on now, Carol. But I, I, and I wasn't like going around talking about it all the time, but they knew it was there. And there was a point where it just went. It was gone, really, really gone, and I knew it. And I feel looking back that that was an incredibly valuable period of my life because the outcome of it was uh, both a sense of strong love and compassion. In fact, that, that guy and the woman he got involved with like two weeks after we split up. <laughs> they're actually two of my closest friends. I mean, I live with them weeks at a time when I'm in California. And there's really, I mean, I've looked, there's just no trace. You know, it's just like a whole other lifetime we're in now. And I really, I really credit that opening to the suffering that allowed it to, to purify in that way. And I've also found that the compassion, that the really allowing myself to know how heavy grief can be and not to judge too much that, you know, it's not like something really horrible has happened. People have so much more grief. That it's, it's really led me to a feeling of sharing with, being able to have true compassion for the grief and pain of other people in whatever kind of circumstance, you know. I, I really value that time as a, as a gift. One third way that, and this isn't such a success story, that I am consciously working now in opening to the pain, which the so-called pain of other people, but in my experience it actually isn't other people, it's my own experience, that I work with it in a conscious way. Often when I go to India, for example, you know, we're just confronted by so much suffering in beggars or New York City or any of the big cities in this country nowadays. It's actually 
not as different as it used to be. But I just watch. How long am I able to stay really connected and compassionate? It's not really about whether I give, whether I don't give, but more about that, the compassion, that, that, that touching of suffering, that touching of hearts. When I'm open, there's a connection. I can look at the person, smile, we're there. It's, and it's so painful because I know I could empty my whole wallet. I could empty all the money I brought with me and it wouldn't make a dent. And I see how long can I really stay open and then I see myself start to shut down. And if I really look, the shutting down is coming about because I don't want to feel the pain that I'm feeling anymore. And so I shut down and the effect is a real separation. I'm not really able to have that eye-to-eye contact anymore. I'm kind of looking away. I want to just get back to my hotel. I mean, if I'm really honest, that's actually more painful. But it's true that, so this is just something I work with, and it's true that the suffering in this world is overwhelming. And we can definitely drown in it. And in cultivating an openness to our own pain and suffering and to that in the world, it's very important to find skillful boundaries. So whether you're on retreat here or whether you're in your work or whether you're traveling, not to expect I have to be open all the time. If you're dealing and you bring it back here with some painful experience here, whether it's a pain in your knee, whether it's a really painful emotional experience or anger or grief or just self-judgment that you're not concentrated enough, you know, or some kind of story you make up about being sleepy. It doesn't really matter what the experience is This, again, is where we come back to what is the intention? How do we relate moment to moment to this difficult experience? And this, again, is where we can consciously cultivate compassion to ourselves. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. I have to deal with my anger, with care, with love, with tenderness, with nonviolence. We do not need to consider anger, anger, hatred, or any other experience as enemies we have to fight or destroy. That would be like transforming yourself into a battlefield. If you cannot be compassionate to yourself, you cannot be compassionate to others. And so I feel our whole practice here is can we work with a deep compassion to ourselves just in these little mundane moment-to-moment experiences? Notice, how do you meet that self-judgment? How do you meet that sleepiness? How do you meet that agony or that wishing that you could experience something more deep than is what is happening? Do you meet it with resistance? Can we just gently allow it Feel the emotion in your body. Let it be just as it is. We don't need to make up a story about it. But we can almost cradle it in the gentle, loving field of awareness. In some ways, the practice of metta, the energy of compassion, are actually the energy of open, accepting awareness. It's really two of the same things. 
Another way you can notice how you're greeting your experience is intention often manifests as thought. And so sometimes I know I'll think I'm just being with what's happening, but the, the little commentary, you know, that little running commentary that comes up once in a while, can be incredibly vicious. I think I'm just being quiet, but the commentary is just one nasty comment after another. Once I was sitting with a, our um, Burmese teacher, Sayada Upandita, the one Joseph was talking about, he's being quite, quite stern. Well, he's, he's, he's actually been quite kind with me, quite compassionate. And uh, he can really tell what's going on. You don't have to tell him much. And I went in one time, and I wasn't even aware that I was having this really atrociously vicious running commentary. He just looked at me and said, you know, some people talk to themselves. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, well... It's supposed to be a silent retreat. <laughs> Which do you think is better, to talk to yourself or to talk to somebody else? I said, well, the way it's going, somebody else would probably be a lot nicer. It was very helpful. And that's where Joseph's mantra of it's okay, it might seem a little forced, but actually a deliberate thought substitution of you stupid jerk, are you stupid? still getting lost in thought, to, it's okay. It's a huge difference. And actually, in that moment, you're developing the intention of compassion. You know, it's just in these little things that it happens. Again, I want to say, in very difficult experiences, compassion sometimes means backing off. And that's a skillful means that you learn to tell for yourself. It doesn't mean I'm going to, say for example, when I was going through that grief, I'm going to get to the bottom of it, I'm going to get to the bottom of it, now I'm sitting here until it's gone, you know, and push, push, push till you're just a basket case. Sometimes it means backing off, opening up, moving to hearing, going outside, refreshing your heart, refreshing your mind. And then other times, we make the mistake of saying, well, I'm really going to take care of myself. I'm just going to be kind to myself, so I won't look at this now. Kind of, I think it was Chogim Trungpa who talked about idiot compassion, where we say, well, just take it easy. I'm not going to push too hard. And basically what we're doing is avoiding. So I have a thing I say to myself a lot. When Joseph was talking about wanting to be comfortable last night, I really resonated because it's one of the challenges I give myself when I feel I'm falling into idiot compassion, I'll ask myself, well, do I want to be comfortable or do I want to be free? Sometimes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not to be too hard on yourself when you choose to be comfortable, but know what we're doing. That's all. Well, there's lots of other ways I don't want to just mention them briefly. Working with loving-kindness meditation, with the metta, that's actually a practice, a cultivation of intention. That as we sit and bring up the wish, may I be happy, may I be free from danger, whatever the phrases are, it's not that we somehow have this naive thing. If I say it enough, then everything's going to change. If I wish that this person is happy, then all their suffering is going to go away. It's not that. 
It's more that we are cultivating and strengthening the power of that intention in ourselves. And it's very interesting and quite powerful how it begins to surface spontaneously in our lives. I used to think that in practicing this metta meditation, if it worked, that meant we'd be kind of bounding around, filled with this boundless, ecstatic love for all beings, you know, that kind of outpouring. You know, sometimes it feels like that. But actually, the way I've experienced it is it's a broadening, a real um, expansive quality of meeting the world. So that what I've found happening more and more and more quite spontaneously is I'll enter a situation, there's something difficult, I see that quite clearly, and where the first response is aversion, and it's there, quite spontaneously then comes up, oh, and... There's this beautiful aspect of the situation as well. And it changes everything. There's a real appreciation and a broad acceptance of things as they are that allows for much more positive and clear action. It's it's been very amazing to me, actually, watching this effect in my life. Using loving-kindness or metta a lot, I use it on planes. Use it in supermarkets when I'm just standing and starting to get impatient in line. It's me and them, and I wish they would hurry up and get out of the way. And I just start to send a little metta. Just those simple phrases, not trying to make anything happen. And it's amazing. Within a minute or two, there's just this sense of us doing our thing, and there's not a problem. Very, very powerful. Working with the bodhicitta that Joseph mentioned the other night. Consciously reflecting on the fact of interdependence. And sometimes this can be intellectual, but it can lead, again, into a real sense of we in a situation together, not me and them. I'll just give one example of that and then close. Once I was, I think I told this before last year, I was traveling on an Indian train in a, a four-tier sleeper which is just, you know, four little platforms and a curtain that sort of closes it from the rest of the train, but not really. And I was traveling by myself, and I got up to my little bench, and there were three other Indian men were sharing this sleeper with me. And I was quite uncomfortable. I mean, the men did not do anything. Just being Indian, which is whereas our tendency as Westerners would be to give someone their privacy and turn away and not look. The guy lying on the bench opposite me just lay there, you know, staring at me all night. And that's just, that's just Indian. I mean, there's nothing unusual about that. I was, of course, acutely uncomfortable and really negative. I wish these guys would leave. Then in the morning, they brought in their whole families, and there was like 15 of us in this little compartment meant for four people. And I was just in this space of fear and separation, and me and them, and I wish they'd leave me alone, I wish they'd get out of here, I wish they just I could have my space. And somehow I just flipped it. I didn't do anything, but I flipped it into, oh, this is our compartment, this is us here in this compartment, it's not me and them, that's all I did. I didn't make any overt movement, I didn't open conversation, just that flip in my mind and the intention. And the whole thing changed. Whereas they hadn't been speaking to me at all. They suddenly became very friendly. 
but not, not in a nasty way, just really sincerely friendly. They went out on the platform at the station, came back with little pakoras and chai, and said, oh, you must taste these Indian treats, you know, and their wives were very friendly, and it was really just this sense of, you know, our little family there traveling in the compartment. Very interesting, the sense of how the mind is the forerunner of all action. It's much more powerful than we might believe. Just to close by reading from Thich Nhat Hanh about this, if I can find it. The interdependence of all beings is not a philosophical game removed from spiritual and practical life. In bringing to light the interdependence of all phenomena, the meditator comes to see that the lives of all beings are one, and he or she is overcome with compassion for all. Seeing and loving go together. Great understanding goes with great compassion. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.